The following sermon audio is from Love City Church, Cincinnati. More audio and information about Love City Church can be found at www.mylovecitychurch.org. This week we're going to continue in our series. It's called Roots, and we are exploring the core values of Love City Church. Uh, Our core values are the driving principles along with our vision and mission uh, that propel and shape all that we do. Uh, So we've already talked about uh, the first couple core values is that we're gospel-centered in everything, and uh, we feel a burden to redefine love to the culture through the scriptures. Uh, This week we'll be discussing our third core value, and that's that we believe there is strength in diversity. Uh, The sad reality is that churches today and historically have mirrored the segregation of the culture that they are a part of. And I'm not just talking about racial segregation, uh, though that might be the highest hurdle to jump, as statistically only 5% of American churches are racially integrated. Uh, We here at Love City, we identify three areas where we believe diversity makes us stronger. We believe that we should be racially diverse, because that will make us stronger. We believe that we should be generationally diverse, because that will make us stronger. We believe that we should be economically diverse, because that will make us stronger. If you have a Bible, I hope you do. Turn with me to Revelation 5, chapter 5, verse 6. Uh, This, honestly, should be three sermons, and so I'm going to do my best to uh, plow through what could be three weeks' worth of material. We will turn to a couple more verses tonight than we would on average. Uh, However, the first one here should be a give me. Revelation's all the way in the back, so you didn't have to look real hard. Um, but I'm, I'm going to do my best to uh, <clears throat> not keep you here too long, but still get this core value to you because it's really, really important. So uh, the reality is that many sermons could be preached on the importance of each one of these. I mean, multiple sermons could be preached on each of these points. Uh, but what we're going to do tonight is just briefly support all of them from the scriptures. So uh, I'm going to give you... I'm going to give you a couple reasons tonight why it's important to be racially diverse just to get started. And so we're going to start in Revelation 5, verse 6. Uh, And we're going to read to verse 10. Okay? So off we go. And I saw between the throne with the four living creatures and the elders a lamb standing as if slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he came and took the book out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. We had taken the book, the four living creatures... And the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each one holding a harp and a golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals, for you were slain and purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. You've made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. Here's what we see here. Uh, Our churches should be a foreshadowing of eternity. We will be there together with people from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And what we're going to spend a lot of time doing is singing together, declaring God's glory, His majesty. And as we behold the unveiled glory of the God of the universe, I honestly believe that we will be so transfixed and in such awe and wonder and amazement that the thought will never cross our minds to complain that we don't like the rhythm or the beat of the music. You understand what I'm saying? Let me just be plain about what I'm saying. Oftentimes, lines of racial segregation, especially in churches, the big issue 
is, uh, you know, what tempo the music's at. Here's the thing. Bump all that. <laughs> We're worshiping the God of the universe, and I'm just, I'm just convinced when all of us together, men throughout all of time who have trusted Christ for their salvation from every tribe and every tongue and every nation, all kinds of different backgrounds, when we get together, and what we're doing is staring at the unveiled glory of the majestic God who spoke and created everything, I think we'll have very little concern for what rhythm or beat we're singing at, but just be very content to declare his glory. The second reason it's important that we be racially diverse is that it brings God glory. One of the reasons that the early church flourished was because they blew the minds of the Romans and everyone else around them uh, when Christians did not separate into two churches. That's what was expected by those observing this early movement, right? So Jesus dies on the cross. He rises from death. Uh, he appears to a bunch of people. He commissions the disciples to go out and make more disciples. And uh, so Christianity begins to grow. What would have been expected would have been really two separate churches because in that day, those who were of Jewish heritage and those that were Gentile did not get along. They would not even eat together. Uh, I, I don't think the word hate is too strong to describe the relationship they had with each other. And so those observing this would have thought, well, how are you going to put people uh, together that have hated each other for so long and expect them to worship God together? But what happened instead of two separate segregated churches is one church. The love of God won and trumped as far back as that racial uh, hatred and animosity went. It broke all that. And they were able to come together and worship God together. And that was a testament to those that were looking at this. Like, that's not normal. That's not normally what people do. What people do is they normally shrink back to whatever their prideful presuppositions are and just, just go with that. Uh, but instead, the love of God called them to drop all that and to love each other and to worship God together. The power of the gospel was declared beautifully to all when these two groups begin to love each other because they were brought together by the gospel. It has evangelistic value. You understand God is literally glorified when people who are different will forget about differences and will stand up to declare God's glory together. I don't care if I'm different than you. In, in every way possible, if I have one thing in common with you, we can be friends forever. You love Jesus we're on the same team. Hallelujah. I don't care what kind of music you listen to. I don't care what kind of food you eat. I don't care what kind of cultural background you come from. I'm bound to you in a way so much stronger than biology that it can't really be accurately described because the blood of Christ binds me to you. And we're bound on a mission that uh, is of the utmost importance, more important than any mission anybody's ever been on. And that's to bring people to the knowledge of Jesus and to relationship with him. Uh, we, we see that... Um, out of this verse, we see that really racial diversity flows out of the gospel. Uh, I'm just going to read this to you. You can make a note of it if you'd like. Galatians 3, 26 through 29. For you, all, you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed, your, clothed yourself with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free man. There is neither male nor female. For you are all... One in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants, heirs according to the promise. Here's the bottom line. The gospel changes everything. And racial unity should be a natural outworking 
of the power of the gospel. I'm going to say that again. The gospel changes everything, and racial unity should be a natural outworking of the power of the gospel. Now, what we can't do is take any of these types of diversity and lift them up to the level of importance equal with the gospel, because by that we would err. We need to understand that the ability to live in unity with people different than us is fruit of and an outflowing of the gospel. It's important, and it should be a natural outworking of what happens when people who are prideful and hateful are arrested by the love of Christ, when their heart changes from a stony, prideful, nasty heart to a loving heart like the one Jesus had for us, uh, what, part of what should happen there is I should care a whole lot less about petty differences that don't really matter, and I should be willing to work alongside anybody that's about the Father's business. That was a great spot to amen. Go ahead. Go ahead. I'll, who's about the Father's business? There you go. Sometimes you need coach. It's okay. I'm a, hey, let's, listen, I'm a loving pastor. I'll, I'll help you get right where you need to be. All right. Uh, thirdly, why is it important, or secondly, why is it important that we are generationally diverse? Okay? Uh, turn with me, if you would, to 1 Kings 12. 1 Kings 12. This one will be a little harder to find than Revelation. Um, we're going to see uh, an example here. Somebody not being wise in counsel. First Kings 12, we're going to start in verse 1. This is the story of uh, Rehoboam and uh, him making an unwise decision. But it's going to illuminate for us one side of why it's important to be generationally diverse. I'll start in verse 1. Then Rehoboam went to Shechem. For all Israel had come to Shechem to make him king. Now when Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, heard of it, he was living in Egypt, for he was yet in Egypt, where he had fled from the presence of King Solomon. They sent and called him, and Jeroboam and all the assembly of Israel came and spoke to Rehoboam, saying, Your father made our yoke hard. Now therefore, lighten the hard service of your father and his heavy yoke which he put on us, and we will serve you. Then he said to them, Depart for three days, then return to me. So the people departed. So, uh... Solomon had worked these folks real hard. They're coming to Rehoboam saying, look, bro, we're happy to serve under you, but you're going to have to slow it down a little bit on the demands. Um, and he says, so you guys go away for three days. I'm going to think about it. Come back. Verse 6, King Rehoboam consulted with the elders who had served his father Solomon while he was still alive, saying, how do you counsel me to answer this people? Then they spoke to him, saying, If you'll be a servant to this people today, and will serve them and grant them their petition, and speak good words to them, then they will be your servants forever. But he forsook the counsel of the elders which they had given him, and consulted with the young men who grew up with him and served him. So he said to them, What counsel do you give that we may answer this people who have spoken to me, saying, Lighten the yoke which your father put on us? The young men who grew up with him spoke to him, saying, Thus you shall say to this people who spoke to you, saying, Your father made our yoke heavy, now you make it lighter for us. But you shall speak to them, My little finger is thicker than my father's loins. Whereas my father loaded you with a heavy yoke, I will add to your yoke. My father disciplined you with whips, but I will discipline you with scorpions. Then Jeroboam and all the people came to Rehoboam on the third day as the king had directed, saying, Return to me on the third day. The king answered the people harshly, for he forsook the advice of the elders which they had given him. And he spoke to them according to the advice of the young men, saying, My father made your yoke heavy, but I will add to your yoke. My father disciplined you with whips, but I will discipline you with scorpions. So the king did not listen to the people, for it was a turn of events from the Lord. 
that he might establish his word, which the Lord spoke through Ahijah the Shilonite to Jeroboam the son of Nebat. If you go on to read, the very next thing that happens is the kingdom splits in half because all the people that came tried to give Rehoboam, a, a, I think, a fair ultimatum. Uh, he answers them. Instead of listening to the wise counsel of the guys that have been around and done this a while, uh, he goes to all his buddies from high school. He's like, okay, they said I should listen to them. What do you guys say? You know, and and what, do you, what do young guys full of testosterone say? No. I'm better, I'm the leader, I'm in charge, and you're going you're gonna to have to bow up now and show them that you're the man, and they're not, right? And so he starts saying crazy stuff, like, your father used whips, I'm going to use scorpions. What does that even mean, right? Like, do you, you have scorpion farms and you've trained these things? I mean, do you have enchanters that are going to command the scorpions after the people? Like, you're, you're just saying weird stuff, man. And that's because you were unwise, and you did not listen to the advice of the guys that had been around a while. You, did, you forsook the advice of the elders, and you went and let your buddies speak in the situation, and then you end up splitting a kingdom over it. Bad call, Rehoboam. As Captain Hook would say, bad form. Bad form, sir. That was not wise. Um, and so, do you see how that ties directly to why it's important that we be generationally diverse, why we have the right attitude about that? Because young people would do well to oftentimes just close their mouths and listen to what someone older than them has to say, especially someone older in the Lord. And some of you don't even like that I said this. Some of you, just because you got a bit of a rebellious spirit on you, like just that I said that is like crossing the grain and you're frustrated about it. You're in sin and you should repent. There are things that people that have been around longer than you will know. Am I saying that just because you're older makes you smarter? No, there's dumb old people. But there's some that are really wise. And they're full of the accrued wisdom that comes in living life. And you would do well to close your mouth and open your ears and listen to them. Rehoboam would have done well to listen to his father's advisors. Now, uh, some situations... However, uh, call for the zeal and passion that is often associated with youthfulness. Um, I'm not going to turn there, but I'm just going to reference the story of David and Goliath that's found in 1 Samuel. Uh, most of you are aware of it. Uh, it's Lucy's favorite story in her Jesus Storybook Bible. I always have to try to convince her to not read that one uh, so that we can get some diversity in our Bible stories, but um, she really likes it. So, and it's, honestly, it's one of my favorite too. So... But I know I say that about everything, so I have no credibility. But anyways, so here's what happens, right? Um, the Philistines and, and, and the Israelites, they're, they're kind of looking across this valley from each other. And um, out comes this guy named Goliath. He's a giant, uh, and he's a very skilled warrior. All he's done all his life is kill people professionally. And so he's apparently pretty terrifying because he comes out and he begins hurling insults at the armies of Israel essentially calling them cowards, essentially saying your God doesn't exist and he's not going to do anything. If he did, one of you would come out here and fight me. And here's the challenge he gives to the army. He says, you guys send your best guy out and I'll come out and uh, whoever wins, the other army will be the slaves. Whoever loses is slaves to the guys that win. This is, this is Goliath's challenge. And he comes out day after day and he hollers this challenge across the valley and uh, the Israelite soldiers are, are shrinking back in fear. The, I mean, the Israelite soldiers, they're, it's not like they haven't fought wars. They have. They've been around, and 
that's probably working against them. They've seen what happens when a guy like Goliath gets a hold of somebody. It's not pretty. And so this, this experience actually happens to be working against them. So here, here comes, uh, we're not for sure, but maybe 12 to 14-year-old David, who's a shepherd, uh, and he's coming to bring his, his uh, brother's lunch at the front lines. And so uh, his father had sent him up there. So he comes up, and he happens to be coming up as Goliath's doing his daily you know, insult of God and his people. And David hears this, and uh, you know, Goliath's saying things like, uh, you know, your God's pitiful, you guys are pitiful, why won't any of you come and fight me? And, and David, upon hearing this, uh, he's not really concerned about how big Goliath is. He's not really concerned about the fact that this guy's a trained killer. Like, David automatically starts to boil with anger because all he hears is this guy over here talking mess to the God of Israel. That's all, that's, he don't think about anything else. So he goes straight to King Saul and says, I don't know what you guys are doing. I'm going to go handle that. And so off he goes down to the stream to get five smooth stones, right? And uh, he's got a sling, guy that can't even hold a sword. And so he starts walking out. One, some of my favorite passages, because I just like to deal with the devil this way. Because David starts walking out there, and Goliath starts looking at him. He's like, he's like almost insulted that this, this little punk kid is coming at him. And he's like, what are you doing? I'm going to crush you, boy. And I'm going to feed you to the birds of the air today. And David's like, listen, son. You come against me with sword and spear and javelin. I'm going to come against you in the name of the Lord God of Israel. And here's what's going to happen today. I'll have your head. That's how this is going to go. I'm going to feed you to the birds and all your buddies. 14-year-old day, here it comes. So what, and what happens? We all know. Slings a stone. Goliath's dead. Takes his own sword to add insult to injury. Chops the guy's head off. And, uh, you know, he's carrying around a giant head. 13, 14-year-old David. Is the fact that he was young the only reason that happened? No. David was anointed by God. He'd already beat a lion and a bear. He had a, he had a faith from God that made him fierce in battle and in just about everything else he did. However, I think it helped. All those guys that had been around, they were, they were older. They had experience working against them, telling them, if I go out there and fight this guy, I'm going to lose. There is no way I can beat him. He's too big, he's too strong, and he's too skilled. That didn't even cross David's teenage mind. How many of you teenage boys got in situations like this where you did not think about the consequences, you just went and did something, right? Because you, whatever it was, zeal and passion plus testosterone equals actions without even thinking about consequences, right? And I'm not saying that most of the time that's fruitful, but what I'm saying is there is real value in the zeal and passion that comes in youthfulness. Sometimes they're less scared to take a risk. And we're going to need people to be willing to do that to get the mission done that God has called us to. And so here's how it should work. We should have passionate young people full of zeal and energy that are willing to, willing to row the oars, so to speak, on this big boat that we're pushing. And you need older folks that have, that have been on these seas a while to, to navigate the thing. Does that make sense to you? That's how that should work. When everybody's working together... The boat gets where it's supposed to go and the mission gets done. When people start bickering back and forth and you got older folks thinking that younger folks are useless and, and lazy, um, and you got younger folks thinking that older folks are out of touch and, and thus useless, um, Satan wins and we lose. But we win when we love each other and we value each other for the differences uh, that we have generationally. We're stronger when we have different generations working together 
with the gifts that God gave us. We would do well to spend time with and invest in people who are not our age. The gospel calls us to love and value each other instead of criticize and disregard each other. Does that make sense to you? You would do good to find somebody younger than you, spend a little bit of time with them. You would do good to find somebody older than you and spend some time with them. You all right with that? It might not be comfortable at first because human nature dictates that you just find people like you and stick around them, but that makes you weaker. How long would the Philistine Gentile giant been able to just sit across there and yell stuff about God not being real and being weak if little David hadn't showed up? I don't know, but he did. God used him. Amen. Why is it important that we are economically diverse? So we've talked about being racially diverse, why that makes us stronger. We've talked about being generationally diverse, why that makes us stronger. And I'm, I'm literally just shaving some ice, enough for a snow cone off the top of the iceberg on these subjects, I promise. Uh, but I want to get to all of them in, in, this, uh, in this setting. So that's why we're doing that. But why is it important that we are economically diverse? Uh, I would say that, again, the love of God should overcome the divisions that our enemy has tried to put between the rich and the poor. Jesus did not come and live a perfect life and die a terrible death on the cross in our place for our sins so that rich folks could gather on yachts, eating shrimp cocktails, wearing white pants and neck scarves, and bashing on poor people for being lazy. Also, he did not die so that poor folks could sit under bridges eating a feast gathered from dumpsters and talk about how wicked and oppressive the rich are. People often mistakenly subscribe godliness to people with the same amount of money as they have. Do you realize that tendency in yourself? Think about it. Oftentimes they even hijack the gospel and make their whole identity and theology about how much money they do or don't have. I want to contrast two, uh, hmm, I want to use the right word here, uh, two lines of thinking, I'll, I'll use that, two lines of thinking as it comes to this. So there are some that adhere to more of what is described as a prosperity theology, and there are some that think more along the lines of, of something known as a poverty theology. So I'll start with prosperity theology. Uh, it's not really that complicated. There are many that they, they overemphasize income and money as it pertains to their identity and their relation to uh, Jesus and, and the gospel. And so a lot of times people that have a lot of money, they'll tend to have a, a prosperity theology that says, if I serve God well, and if, if I'm a faithful steward of what God gives me, then God's going to bless me a lot, and that's going to be the major sign that God does love me, is I'm going to be financially blessed. And so that lets me know that I'm okay with Jesus because... Uh, I have a fat bank account and a car that people look at when I drive by, right? God must be happy with me because I have material possessions. And so what that means is if you think that way, then if you see somebody that is not blessed uh, materially, then apparently they've done a bad job as far as it pertains to uh, being in relationship with Jesus and being a good steward. On the adverse, you have a poverty theology which says... Um, Rich people are wicked, and uh, if you have a dollar, you should give it away and then, you know, forage for dandelions in a field 
you should never hold on to any money. You should never do anything other than get it away from you because money itself is evil. And so anybody that has money uh, or you know, has a car that's not rusting to pieces, they're, they're wicked and they're bad stewards and they're terrible. Do you see the problem? We have extremes on either side. They've put way too much of their identity, way too much clout in their financial position. And ultimately, this whole deal is not about money. It's about righteousness. Money's a tool. It does take money to do the work of the kingdom. No question about that. Uh, the Bible has a lot to say about money. The very fact that I said money through a microphone in a church service got some of you nervous and agitated um, because uh, money's an idol for you. That was fun, wasn't it? Um, so, and you don't like when I come and attack your idols. Like, hold on, that's mine. Um, if, you even, if you have ever said or thought, I don't... I don't want to hear a church guy talk about my money. <clears throat> you're in trouble, man. Just off the bat, you're in trouble because you've already betrayed yourself. The, the language of that statement betrays you because what you've already failed to realize is that absolutely everything you have, including the oxygen currently filling your lungs, belongs to God. And so it's not your money. Anything in your hand is something that's been given to you to steward. And so you should chill out with all that and, uh, and ask God how it is he would, he would have you allocate your resources. You mad about that? Nobody ran for the door. That's good. I had them lock them just so you couldn't get out, so you had to hear the rest of that. <clears throat> Go ahead and unlock that, guys. I'm just kidding. Okay, so uh, prosperity versus poverty theology, neither one of those is right, okay? It's not about money. It's about being righteous. Uh, and righteousness does not come by how little or how much money you have. Everyone okay with that? Good. You're really excited about it. I knew you would. I thought your reaction would be all, just so hard to contain when we started talking about money in church. Isn't that fun? Good. Okay. Uh, there are four types of people in the Bible in regards to economic status. Okay? And this is what I think oftentimes we fail to realize. Um, there are righteous rich people in the Bible. There are righteous poor people in the Bible. There are unrighteous rich people in the Bible. And there are unrighteous poor people in the Bible. Neither one of these automatically, this, neither economic status automatically lets me know where you're at with Jesus. It can't. It's not an accurate indicator. Uh, Generosity is a good indicator. Generosity is a fruit of somebody that's been arrested by Jesus and loves him. Uh, not being uh, uh, stingy with your money, that tells me probably that you have the same spirit of giving on you that caused Jesus to go to the cross and give himself for us. Um, but how much money you have that can't tell me uh, because there's righteous and unrighteous in both areas. And so I'll just, maybe you, you don't believe that, so we'll just run through it. Um, righteous rich. See, a lot of you, that'd be the hardest one. You're like, ah, there can't be any righteous rich people. Those rich people... Well, first of all, what I need you to understand, my dear friend, my dear one, my dear American friend, is uh, simply because you're in this country, you, you really, on a global perspective, you would fall into the rich category. Really. I know some of you don't believe that. That's why some of you, I really think it's beneficial for every single Christian, if at all possible, to take themselves up out of the Disneyland we live in, call America, and take themselves and, and go on a foreign mission somewhere. Um, it will help you have a good perspective. That's, that's part of the, it's, it's, and really, um, 
Even some of the outreach that we do around here, uh, we, we go down on Wednesday nights downtown, and there's, there's people living in poverty that I would say is comparable to places I've seen uh, in other parts of the world. It's, it's just good for you to understand um, that if, you're not, if you are not seriously concerned about where your next meal is coming from, like you're on the rich end of the spectrum globally. There's a whole lot of people that they're, they're, they have a valid concern about if they're going to eat or if their kids are going to eat. Okay, so we need to get that right. And so just because in this culture we idolize those that have made a bunch of money and so they get a lot of attention through media, we start to compare ourselves to them. You know, if I don't have four Bentleys and a jet, you know, and, and a suit made of cashmere, um, man, I'm poor. <laughs> cashmere suits are cool, right? Or is that, am I wrong on that? I don't know. I don't know anything about fashion, okay? Just scratch that one from the record. Um, whatever's cool to you, right? I always imagine rich guys in like those white pajama-looking outfits all the time with the, like the deep V-cut. I'm way off course. Um, so whatever your perception is, you're really to the rest of the world, they're looking at you just because you're here and thinking that that's a wicked rich person. So just get your mind right about that. But here's the thing. Even somebody uh, that's just wealthy, stinking, got-my-own-island type of rich, um, we... I think, tend to demonize those type of people, think that there's little chance they could be righteous. Um, the, the reality is there are righteous rich people in the Bible. Uh, Joseph of Arimathea, that's the guy that uh, came and asked for Jesus' body, uh, took it down from the cross, um, and, and put, laid him in his own tomb. And that was part of the fulfilling of a prophecy that spoken long ago, long before Jesus was even born, uh, that said that he would, be, he would be laid among rich men. He would lay with rich men in his death. And so uh, that, that was a pretty expensive thing. Jesus did not have a lot of money while he was here on earth. And so uh, he, uh, Joseph of Arimathea was, was a righteous man. He was a believer, had the money to be able to give his tomb uh, to Jesus. So uh, there's a righteous rich person. How about unrighteous rich people? Yeah, there's lots of those. I mean, look at all the wicked kings that just did crazy stuff with the resources that they had defied God, um, guys like Naaman, there's just all kinds of people, there's plenty of examples of people with money that um, that became their God. Um, but Jesus said pretty clearly you can't serve God in money, and so that's not going to work. Uh, how about on, on the poor end of things, so righteous poor people, how about, uh, I don't know, Jesus had no place to lay his head, um, it's a pretty solid example there. Um, I would say uh, the widow that came and put the two mites in, Jesus was able to teach something out because of her heart. You know, a lot of folks, they like to, uh, <clears throat> you're going you're gonna to really like this. Uh, they, they like to say, you know, the New Testament doesn't talk about tithing and preachers shouldn't talk about it. And I should, you know, I should just give cheerfully without compulsion. You like that verse? I know, I know, I know. Um, but here's the thing. Here's what Jesus shows us out of the, the widow that puts in the, the, the two mites or the two copper coins. He says, that woman right there gave more than anybody else here. Even though all those guys were peacocking, walking up to the thing, like making sure everyone saw it, shaking that bag of maybe gold coins they had and looking around as they dropped it in, you know what I mean, with the swagger. Uh, he said, no, 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 I don't care if that guy put $20 million in that bucket. That woman right there put more in because she put all that she had. And so some of you like to get real technical and you like to think you're a Bible scholar and you like to say, oh man, the New Testament doesn't say anything about tithing. And so uh, 
I don't need to worry about that. But here's the thing. Here's what you tend to forget. None of the requirements that are on us became less because of grace. Jesus demanded an uptick in every area from us in lieu of his sacrifice on the cross. You happy yet? Here, I'll get you, I'll get you, I'll get you real mad, then I'll get you happy. So you, you don't like to talk about tithing. Here's the thing. Like Jesus came and said things like, um, you've heard it said, under the law, um, you're supposed to love your neighbor. But he, but he says, here's what I'm going to say to you. Love your enemy too. He takes it up a notch. Right? And so we think that, uh, you know, the New Testament means we can have just a freewheeling grace party. We don't need to do anything. The law is abolished. Yay! Jesus did what he's going to do. Goo, kazoos, and party hats. There's no rules. I could do what I want, including give nothing or give diddly squat because God doesn't care and he's got all the cattle on a thousand hills and so it doesn't matter. Look, man, at the end of the day, this has nothing to do. I don't even mention this. You know how, because of our culture, like it's so unfun to even discuss money, even though the, the Bible has so much to say about it. Like, you can't preach through the scriptures without addressing it because it's seriously one of the highest potentials we have for idolatry in our lives. And so if I'm a, if I'm a good pastor that really loves you, as frustrating as it is for you, I'm going to come and mess with you about your money because it's not your money belongs to the Lord. And ultimately, it has, there's no self-serving in this because I am thoroughly convinced that if God calls uh, a church into existence and in, to a mission, he's going to provide for it. Here's the thing, man. Calling you to give in lieu of the blood of Christ and in lieu of grace, uh, it's not about trying, this isn't a fundraiser. This is about, I thoroughly believe that obeying God and trusting him with your finances is going to lead to more joy for you. It's going to give you an opportunity to see God do what he does, which is be faithful. You think you can outgive him? You can't. He's way better than you and richer than you. <laughs> He's awesome. And so uh, just, just understand that I know you can't find the word tithe in, in, in the New Testament, and, and some of you, you're really happy about that, but I would just say, for me and for, and for my wife, the, the standard I find in the New Testament is that it says in Corinthians that I've been made rich so that I can be generous on every occasion. See, I, don't, I feel like tithe is the floor. Like, I need to be looking for opportunities to be generous with what God has given me. Whether that be here as far as needs that the church has to propel our mission forward, or if it's my next door neighbor needs help with something. Um, generosity should mark the Christian. And it, it'll help us not to idolize money, which is, is so easy to do. So uh, righteous poor, Jesus uh, and the widow that puts in the two copper coins, puts in all she has. Uh, unrighteous poor, Proverbs has all kinds of warnings uh, to poor people that are sluggards, that just don't want to do anything. It says that there's a guy, he's so lazy, he'll put his hand down into the food dish, but doesn't have the energy to lift it back to his mouth. Uh, Proverbs says that guy is just this side of useless and uh, he, should, he should repent and work. Uh, the New Testament also tells us that uh, if you don't work, you don't eat. And so uh, it is possible to be righteous and rich, unrighteous and rich, righteous and poor, and unrighteous and poor. Um, and here's the other thing we need to know. A humble rich man can learn something profound from a poor man. And a humble poor man can learn something profound from a rich man. 
Both are true. What oftentimes is, uh, and really with all kinds of divisiveness, uh, pride is the root that causes us to feel superior to those with more or less than us. Some of you would reject the wisdom of somebody with more money than you because you feel more righteous because you have less. You need to come down off that high horse. Um, and, and what happens oftentimes is like we, we feel really justified to be super vocal about other people's stewardship and what they do. And so most of us know somebody that has more money than us or we've, we've seen this and we think that they, they, you know, they, they spend too much on themselves or whatever. Man, you should reserve that judgment and just, and just close your mouth about it and, and be focused on whether or not you're being a good steward of what you got. You got enough to worry about on your own. I got one guy shaking his head up and down. The rest of you look like if you had laser vision, you would kill me right now. And that's okay. Um, Praise God. Jesus talked about money a lot. Um, It is, I mean, why did he have warnings? Why did he say where your treasure is, your heart is also? He wanted you to understand. You will have a tendency uh, to make money into a God. And it's a terrible God. Money's not a good God. It didn't die for you. It's not going to secure your eternity. It doesn't have the power that the real God does. So please don't worship it. Worship the real God. Amen? Amen. Amen. Uh, Diversity can mistakenly be put on the same level of importance as the gospel. The truth is that diversity should be a fruit of the gospel if the gospel is working in people's lives. As the love of God overtakes our hearts... We should abandon the pride and fear that causes us to huddle with people just like us and embrace everyone with the same love that we've been given. If we are people who are living gospel-centered, missional, kingdom-minded lives in grateful response to the grace that has been shown to us by King Jesus, then we will be a diverse community in all the ways that we've discussed. Because it will be much harder for the enemy to come and sow divisions among us and get us prideful about who we are being better than who someone else is. We will be diverse in race and age and income. And it won't be out of painful obligation. It won't be because we've been beat into it verbally, but because we authentically and deeply value people who are different than us. You hear what I'm talking about? I hope you look longingly to us being better at this. I think we're better than average at this, honestly. Uh, I think Love City's uh, been anointed by God and helped by God and graced by God to be a diverse congregation. I think we're already doing well at that, but we need to keep these things in mind uh, because Satan's always looking for an angle. He doesn't like churches on mission. He doesn't like churches that preach the gospel like we do. He doesn't like churches that do outreach like we do. He doesn't like churches that are about discipling people and calling people to mission like we are. And so... He will look for any open door to try to get in and slow down what's going on. Uh, Divisiveness is is going to be one of the number one ways to try to cut away at what should be a loving realization that the differences among us make us stronger. He He wants us to see those differences that make us stronger as weaknesses and points of frustration because he's a deceiver and he's a liar. And it really... we don't need a lot of help <laughs> to be prideful and, and towards a tendency of selfishness and self-centeredness. That's kind of the default of, of human nature. So we do need a lot of help 
by the grace of God to do the opposite. But that's good. That puts us in a good position where as we sing songs like we did this morning, Lord, please give me grace to trust you more. It's real for us. It's not just some hollow refrain that we're singing along because that's what we do when we gather together as God's people. We can desperately cry out to God, Lord, I know that I'm prone to be prideful. God, I know that I'm prone to think people different than me are less than me. And I don't want to do that because that's sinful. So God, please grace me to see diversity as strength. And it can be real for us. And God will be glorified as we do that, as we care about it, and as we walk it out. In order to be a community that values diversity, we must be a people who value diversity. What I mean there is for all of us to value diversity, each of us has to value diversity. We must repent of any pride or deception that keeps us from loving everyone. My prayer is that we would break stereotypes and we would be a shining example of God's love as the, as the early church was. And I would say of us that may we be joyously diverse for our good and for God's glory as long as we're allowed to be on this earth. Amen. Let's pray together. Father God, we come before you now in the name of Jesus. Lord, we love you. And Lord, we just want to stop and declare our need for you in this. We need your help. We need your grace. We need your strength. We need your anointing. Because Lord, it is not our default to value diversity. It is not our default to value differences in others, whether that be racial or, or in, in what generation or age they are, or whether it be based on their income. Lord, we are prone to see those like us and those closest to us as of the most value. And God, that's sinful. It's wrong. It's backwards. I'm stronger because of different people around me that have different gifts and different perspectives. Help me to see that and believe that with all of my heart and help me to walk out the result of that type of thinking. Lord, help us to love each other. God, help us to be as the early church was. Help us to be an example to those that maybe don't believe in you. Help us to show them that the barriers that normally keep people apart, they are broken because of the gospel. And let that draw them in. Let, them, let that draw them into your gospel. Let that, draw, let that draw them into relationship with you. Let them see that the love we speak of is real. And that it breaks long-standing barriers. That it does what, what nothing else really could do. Help us to love each other well. Help us to serve each other well. And in all of this, let it be, Lord, for our good and for your glory. We thank you for your help in this. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Love City Church, located in Cincinnati, Ohio. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. To give or find out more about Love City Church, visit www.mylovecitychurch.org.